This morning, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to speak to us and through us today that his will may be accomplished. This has been a very busy week, but I've learned that if you're not busy, the devil finds work for idle hands to do. So I don't mind being busy for the glory of God. This morning, let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to know that we are so blessed. The irritations of life can sometimes cause our hearts to tremble. But you allow the storms to come. You allow the winds to blow. Even in the moments when pain is felt, we don't realize until someone cannot feel at all that even pain itself can sometimes be a blessing. And so this morning, as you have reminded us of the extent and magnitude of our blessings, we pray that now we can look at this wonderful thing called the Christian journey and find our strength and our courage in you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin by going to, to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. The message is entitled, The Power of Go. What is the title? The Power of Go. Let's begin in Matthew, chapter 19, and we're going to look at verse 21. Matthew 19, and we'll look together at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, what's the next word? Go. Go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This week I was reading my devotional, and this morning, uh, Terry Shelton and I he revealed to me that he also was reading his devotionals this week. And one of the components of my devotional life is not only the writings of Ellen White, but a, a gentleman by the name of Oswald Chambers. And this week in that devotional, the word go took on a completely different, enhanced, expanded meaning to me. To the point where I come to realize that Everything beyond the moment of accepting Christ happens if we are willing to simply respond to the word go. And so today we're going to take a journey together, a journey through the power of the word go. And I'd like to begin with a story. I read just this week about the 1968 Olympics that took place in Mexico City. And one of the activities in this 1968 Olympic was a 42-kilometer race. But since we don't think in kilometers, that's simply about 26.1 miles. Up and down the mountains of Mexico, some of the runners trained themselves for high-altitude running, but there were some that didn't, and it caught them by surprise when they realized they had to traverse the rugged terrain of some of the mountains in Mexico. 
The winner of the marathon was a man from Ethiopia by the name of Mamo Waldi. He finished the race in two hours, 20 minutes and 26 seconds. And the people applauded, as is the case in every Olympic race, they applauded because he was the first to cross, cross the finish line. But the story didn't end there. When there were only a few thousand people left in the stadium and the sun had set and a television crew was sent to broadcast the medal ceremony, a word had echoed throughout the media line that there was one more person that was yet to cross the finish line. You see, the race began in the arena and then it exited the arena to traverse the 26 miles and then it entered, the winners entered back or the runners came back into the arena and then crossed the finish line. And after the medal service and people were leaving, out of the 75 people that had run the race, there was mo one more left to finish the race. Only 57, by the way, had finished. An Olympian by the name of John Stephen Aquari finished last among the 57 who completed the race. What had happened, here's a picture of him as he is in the stadium. You can see and notice his right leg is bandaged. He has cloths holding his leg together. At the 11-mile mark, when the runners were jostling for position, John Stevens fell. He was badly wounded. He dislocated his knee and hit his shoulder hard on the pavement. However, he continued running, and 18 others decided, that's it, I can't go any farther. Three hours, 25 minutes, and 27 seconds later, with just a few thousand people left in the stadium, John Stephen Aquari finally crossed the finish line. To the cheer of a much smaller crowd, the people still nonetheless continued to cheer him as he limped into the stadium, dragging his foot behind him, crossing the finish line as he walked the last bit of the way. The media couldn't miss that a moment. They, they came to him with the cameras and the microphones. He said, why did you continue running when you were so injured? You knew you, and I were going, you knew you were not going to win. Why did you continue running? And John said something that when I read this statement, I thought, wow, if he could do it, I could do it. He said, and I quote, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. So this morning, pause with me as we look at a short one and a half or so minute clip of this incident as it unfolded. This is John as he's walking a side view. You can see the stadium is emptying out based on the crowds that would normally be in Olympic Stadium. But here is how they recorded this incident.
Isn't that inspiring? I watched that over and over and over and over again, and I thought, here I am complaining about sitting down, having to do lessons and stay up late, and I thought about this young man. The stadium was emptying out. The people were going home. The medal ceremony had been already completed, but he knew that he did not come to start the race, but he came to finish the race. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, God did not send his son to earth for us just to start the race. He sent Jesus so that we can finish the race. When I thought about that, the words of Matthew stuck out to me in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13. And I'd like us to read this because this is the clarion call of heaven. This is the challenge of the master who has called us to stay in the race regardless of the difficulty, the hardships, the annoyances. The Bible says, let's read this together, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Can you say amen? amen? And we are living in the time where endurance has to increase. We are facing battles and hills and valleys and difficulties in family and work and job and situations and life and the political circle, the financial circle, the, the climate of our world is falling apart just this week alone. If we could chronicle all the things that have taken place in our world on the front of war being threatened, the things that are happening over in Europe and Ukraine and in Russia and so much confusion there and then the wars that could occur, the, the, the threats that could happen, then we look at the storms that are battering the coast and then the falling stock market, when it goes up, it goes down and we wonder, how is this all going to pan out? And the Bible says... But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the beauty of the story. That's the imperative of the story to endure to the end. But my question today is, or my statement is, it is impossible to finish a race unless we start the race. You got to begin the race before you finish the race. So we found our inspiration from how John Stephen Macquarie hung in there and ended. But as I revealed to you a story in the Bible that really pulled out of me many of the things that I did not know was there, and I sometimes wonder, are the Bible writers trying to encourage us or discourage us by some of the Bible stories contained there? Matthew, Mark, and Luke contained the story of a young man who had every intention of Wanting to be saved, he even asked the question, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And as you open your Bibles to Matthew 19, we're going to see a story that is heart-wrenching, that has quite a disappointing ending, but it contains the points that each one of us need to grapple with, the things that we need to draw from. And I ask myself the question, what makes a story disappointing? When I look at this young man's life through the window of Matthew and Mark and Luke, there's so many parallels that these Bible writers bring out. As, as I think of the story, this was not a coincidental meeting. This was a meeting, follow me for a moment, that was scheduled in eternity past. This young man did not reach Jesus or meet Jesus by coincidence. And I've come to realize that we don't have encounters with Christ 
coincidentally, we have encounters with Christ providentially. Every moment that we are confronted with eternity to be saved or be lost is not a coincidental moment, but it's a providential moment. It's a moment that could end like this young man's story or it could end like John's story. Like this young man who pushed through the difficulties of life because he realized that he was not called to begin the race, but he was chosen to end the race. I want to say this again. We have not been called by God just to start the Christian journey. We have been called by God and equipped by God and strengthened by Christ to finish the race. But as we get closer to the end, as we get closer to the end, there are people that are dropping out of the race. They're leaving for reasons that when you look back, when the day comes that we stand on the podium of the victorious, there are many people that are going to say, if I had only stayed in the race, if I had only hung in there through the trials that came my way, if I had only stayed in the race through the difficulty that I faced, if I only knew it was going to be this good, I would not have left the race. And people are leaving for reasons that don't make sense. As I told you, my wife and I were down, down in Mount Rushmore there in, I think it's South Dakota or North Dakota. I get mixed up which one it is. South Dakota, we were invited there when I was living in California, pastoring a church in the Northern California area. And I was chosen to sing the song, God Bless the USA, with a choir behind me called the I Love America Singers, all different denominations. And I was told that when we sing that song on that particular morning, it would mark the 50th inaugural anniversary of the president's heads. And had, they had never been officially dedicated, but they said, it's going to be dedicated that day, and you have been chosen to sing God Bless the USA. I don't get nervous, but I want to tell you, my right leg was vibrating. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was pressing my toe down. I was standing behind that podium. They said, now, when you sing today... President Bush, that's Father Bush, is going to be in the audience. All the National Guards are going to be there. The, all the military branches are going to be there. There's going to be a flyover, first of the Red Barons, then the F-16s and the F-18s, and then the B-1 bombers. But don't look up. You want to kind of go like... <laughs> and you, you, we heard this thundering sound above us, and then the tracks sing and, and I hear if tomorrow all the things are going and I'm singing and I'm thinking my legs my leg was just I was so glad I was behind something that you couldn't see it was an awesome moment but I wondered why I was chosen and I was there and the night before Friday evening we had the rehearsal all the singers were there and we met three people and I talk about leaving the race we met three people that we found out were former Seventh-day Adventists they left the church and we didn't have a vehicle. They said, hey, that was long before 3ABN. I was just coming out of Heritage and just starting ministry in California. And my wife and I, we looked for moments like that. We said, can we visit with you? They said, well, sure, here's our address. We don't have a car, so you have to take us to your house, and then you got to take us back to the hotel. Would that be okay? And they looked at each other like to think, okay, what are we getting ourselves into? And they acquiesced and took us to their home a husband and wife, and an in-law. And we listened to their stories because they told us at the rehearsal that they used to be Seventh-day Adventists. Well, as an Adventist pastor, I couldn't let that moment get away. 
I said, this is a moment. So I went to their home, visited with them, and I started asking each one of these, what was the reason you left? And the lady began, well, one Sabbath morning, the pastor and I had an exchange that really offended me. I used to play the organ, and that was the last time I attended church for the last, I forgot how many years, I have never gone back. And I was waiting for her story to continue. What else happened? That was it. You mean you left God's church over a misunderstanding between you and the pastor? And she looked at her husband like to say, is, is there anything more to this story? She realized how, how fragile it was. How, is that the reason we left? And I, has, I said, well, why did you leave? Because my wife was offended. <laughs> All right. And I said, well, you? And she said, I was a Sabbath school teacher. And if I remember the story well, somebody had been chosen to take my place as the Sabbath school teacher, and I was very upset by that, and I left too. Three people left the church for those reasons that I could recall. And I leaned forward in the moment. I think that, as I said this morning, from eternity past, God had scheduled that moment for my wife and me. And I said to them, you mean to tell me you walked away from the truth? You walked away from serving God for that? Really? There was not a whole lot they could say, but they paused and thought about it. We spent a little more time with them, and they took us back to the hotel. We hadn't heard anything from them, but I have in my file cabinet at home letters from those three individuals. The letter with the husband and wife, about a year and a half later or so, I got a letter. They said, oh, by the way, I'm playing the organ again, and we're back in church. And the other lady said, and I'm Sabbath school teacher again, and I'm back in church. And I thought, would to God that we labored with brothers and sisters who may be discouraged and at a fragile moment in their, in their run to the finish line, something occurred that injured them somehow, and we felt comfortable to leave them to the enemy. You can have that one. He that endures to the end shall be saved. What makes endings discouraging to me when I think about it is the potentials spiritually that was never reached, the victories that were never experienced, people settling for good when best was just one decision away, or refusing the eternal values in favor of the temporal ones. How disappointing the stories are going to be. And I thought about it on Judgment Day. There's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I believe and I, 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 I have convinced myself that that weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth is not going to occur just because people are lost. But I believe that somewhere in that sad moment, there's going to be a realization of what could have been. I could have been on the other side of that wall. I could have been at that supper. I could have had a robe with my name on it and a crown with my head under it. 
When I think about the things we face as a people, I don't think that people fear failure. I think they fear success. Because you'll find in this story that the reason I believe that people fail, fear success is because success requires sacrifice. Success requires giving something up. Success requires doing something other than you really want to do. But the end result, like is the case of John, the end result is he could look back and his countrymen could say, at least you stayed in the race. At least you represented us well. Because you know what? I don't know anything about the other runners. I just remember John Stephen Aquari. So sometimes you could lose but still win. Sometimes you could come in last but still be remembered that you came in at all. So it's not where you place. We're not going to cross into heaven first or second or third or fourth with the millions we have been encouraged that are going to be saved because the Bible says when we stand on the sea of glass, there will be a number which no man can number. Can you say amen? And I don't care if I go in first, this is my repetitious statement, or last, as long as the door shuts behind me. We are equipped by God to reach a potential that few of us even realize. And we quit before we get to the finish line because something somehow just got under our wing and just made us quit. But if we stay in the race... If we hang in there through the ups and downs of life, we will find, and I love this statement in the book Education, the servant of the Lord says in Education, page 18, higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for his children. But you'll never know that if you quit. You'll never know how far you could have gone. And there were times in our ministry of 35 years that we wanted to quit. And sometimes when we think, I got all the shots that I'm ever going to get, I get another shot. And the Lord said, I saw that shot coming. Stay in the race. I saw that, I saw that unfolding, but just stay in the race. You see what Paul talked about, I fought a good fight. Sometimes you got to fight through the things that don't make you feel good. Sometimes you got to hang in there when the moments are not like you'd like them to be. Because if Jesus hung in there and he provided us the strength that we can hang in there, then you understand the power of go. Go, keep going, keep going. The cross is before you, keep going. And as I said before, the cross was not his final stop. The cross was a stop on his way to the joy that was set before him. So sometimes we have, there's a cross in front of us. But beyond that cross is the joy that was set before him. So when I read this story this week, John Stevens Aquari's story is the epitome of the Christian journey. The victory is not in finishing first. The victory is in finishing at all. That's why the wise man Solomon wrote these words in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11. He says, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. You don't have to be fast. You don't have to have, try to break a clock speed. You don't have to try to run better and stronger than anybody else in the church. You just got to stay in the race. You just got to keep going forward. 
You just got to know that there's a finish line. I imagine when John was running, and you, you notice in some of the video there that the street, the, the lights of the, of the police car had to provide him light so he could see till he got back into the broad light of the stadium. He was still running in the dark, but he was still going. And sometimes we've got to run in the dark, but we can't give up. We've got to keep going. What do you say? What's even more discouraging than, than losing a race is the desire to win, but the unwillingness to do what is necessary to win. Thus, we look at this story in Matthew 19 and verse 16. We begin with these words. The scripture reading comes back to us again. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? When I read this, I, I, I jostled, I went back and forth between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because this story is replete with a lot of good stuff. There are certain things that one writer will include that the other one didn't. And Mark included something. Mark is the writer for the underdog. Mark is the guy that writes for the people that seem to be left out. He's the, he favors the underdog. Dr. Luke includes portions that will be caught by a doctor that a tax collector would not see. And Mark, not seeing what the tax collector sees or what the doctor sees, he sees that guy that is just in the back of the crowd who wants to finish the race. And so when I read that question that was brought to Jesus, the question is unusual because of the moment of what happened when he asked that question. He didn't come to Jesus and say, now what do I need to do to be saved? Mark, and Mark gave us another view of the story that, that made it clear that he didn't come to Jesus saying, now what do I need to do to be saved? Like some people say, what do I need to do to join your church? Some people say, what do I have to give up? I said, well, be willing to give up hell for heaven. Give up the fires of destruction for the joy of, of the new Jerusalem. Give up? What do you have that you can trade for eternity? Mark said in Mark chapter 10 verse 17, he puts the setting together. He gives us something to show that this young man was not just coming with an arrogant question. He says, now as he was going out on the road, he came, how? Running, knelt before him and asked him. He was in the posture of humility. He really wanted this. He saw Jesus and he said, I can't let him get away. I know what he has and what he has is what I need. So he came running knelt before him and asked with a humble voice, servant of the Lord said, he came with a deep desire to be saved. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He ran and knelt before a good teacher. He ran and knelt before a good teacher. Well, what he did not know this is not just a good teacher. This was the best teacher. I mean, think about the knowledge contained in that moment that when he said to Jesus, Marlena, good teacher, Jesus could have said, you talking to somebody? You can't be talking about me. Good teacher, have you seen my blueprints for the next galaxy I'm going to be building? Good teacher. Good teacher. 
When he made that statement, he was standing in the presence of the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. When I saw that statement, Terry, I could not run past that statement. It took me to the place where the great I am, the one who knows all, who understands all, the one who never says, what shall we do? The one in whom, do you realize that Jesus doesn't ask the question, what do we do? He doesn't say, Peter, do we have an answer for the moment that we're, we find ourselves in? He is the great I am, the, the one that knows all, the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one. He's standing in the presence of one who knows it all, and he says to him, you're a good teacher. But I paused for a moment, and I, I began to remind myself of the capacity of Jesus. Peek with me to Job chapter 38. Here it is on the screen. Let me walk with you through it methodically. This is what a good teacher does. He's asking us as his students, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. <laughs> That's what a good teacher asks his students. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Oh, who stretched the line upon it? He's asking the questions. Verse 6 of Job chapter 38. To what were its foundations fastened? How is this world hanging in there? How does this sphere just sit out in space with no strings attached? That's what the great teacher asked. Or who laid his cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors? You mean, Lord, there are doors that holds the sea in? When it bursts forth and issues from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Where were you when I did all that? Jesus could have opened up on that young ruler and said, wait a minute, before you even ask any further questions, let me remind you in whose presence you stand. We don't serve a good teacher. We serve the great I am. Who do you know that can confound scientists and bring astronomers to a bewildering standstill? Who do you know that can say, while you're building that new telescope in the high mountains of Brazil, you need to aim it in this direction because you need to get a clear view of my second coming. The great I am, who can bring the mightiest to his knees and raise the obscure in society to a position of honor. Only the great I am. The universe can't contain him, and the grave cannot detain him. Can you say amen, somebody? Science cannot explain him, and great men cannot defame him because he's the great I am. The Supreme Court can't try him. Philosophers can't deny him. Gravity can't defy him, and money can't buy him. The great I am. This is the one in whose presence this young man is asking, what can I do to have eternal life? Jesus became weak that we might become strong. He exited the chambers of the grave so that the grave will have nothing to boast about. The great I am, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb of God, powerful and humble at the same time. That's who the rich young ruler stood in the presence of. The lily of the valley the rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star who is also the light of the world. 
He is the stone the builders rejected and the rock in a weary land. Come on, say amen, somebody. Don't sleep now. Just getting started. Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he wanted to be like him, but he had no clue in whose presence he stood. I don't know about you, but when the day comes that I could stand in the presence of Jesus, I'm planning now to kneel when I see Jesus. Unlike some people call him homie and my boy. And no, that's not who he is. He is to be adored and to be praised and to be honored. Good teacher, what good thing must I do that I may have eternal life? Matthew takes us a bit. What should I do? Well, he felt that there was something he could do to have eternal life. But I want to tell you, if there was something that he could do to have eternal life, then he would be the first one alive that can do something to warrant him eternal life. But according to David the psalmist, none of us could do anything that would be worthy enough to result in eternal life. Am I right? The psalmist David said, There is none who does good, no, not one. Psalm 14 and verse 3. None of us are capable of doing anything good enough to warrant us eternal life. Everything good is done by God. Everything positive in our lives is accomplished by God. Everything that could ever become anything is orchestrated and carried through by the mighty power and presence of God himself. What can I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus backs him up a moment in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 19 with this question. He said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And I like the way he said it here. But if you want to enter into life, what did he say? Keep the commandments. Now, now you can take the time to read the commandments Jesus talked about. But the reason why Jesus talked about the commandments is he knew that this young ruler had an association religiously where the commandments were being kept. But there was something deeper. There is something deeper than keeping the commandments by the letter. There is the spirit of the law. What does that call that? The spirit. Like the Bible says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer already. If you look upon a woman to lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. So he said it's far deeper than just what you hear. It's far deeper than anything that you can do. The commandments are far deeper than just the letter. Salvation is not something that is accomplished by our doing. Salvation is a gift of God. And so Jesus mentions the commandments. He brings it to the table of this young man. And then the young man responds after Jesus mentions the last six commandments. He takes a swath from the last six commandments and look at the response in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? If he hung in there, the story would have ended on a positive note. 
So what am I lacking? I keep the Sabbath. I pay tithe of mint and anise. I don't eat any unclean foods. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I understand and I can teach all the 28 fundamentals. What do I lack? He's almost, he's almost backing up Christ to say, if that's what needs to happen for me to have eternal life, I've already done that. So what's the problem? When you look in the Greek there, he's in essence saying, is there anything more that I need to do? But he's more specifically asking Christ, so if I've already done that, what's left? What else do I need to do? Almost giving himself the credit for all the things he has been able to accomplish on his own strength. And then comes the verse upon which the rest of the sermon hangs. Look at verse 21. But not verse 21 in Matthew, verse 21 in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And I have five takeaways. Five takeaways. Five points. But let's look at this verse because this verse to me is the epitome of all that the gospel writers have recorded about this young man's desire to be saved. Keep this in mind before we go to that verse. Remember, he wants to be saved. He wants eternal life. He wants to be in the kingdom. He wants to find out what he needs to do in order to get eternal life. And that is like many today. Many people want to be saved. But this verse begins to put everything together in a way that the Lord alone can do it. And I, be, I love the way that Mark starts out. Remember, Mark is the underdog writer. He looks at things that people tend to miss. Matthew looks at it logistically. Luke's, look, looks at it maybe medically. But Mark looks for the small nuances. He talked about the young man running and kneeling. But now he notices that Jesus is not just giving him suggestions, but the way that Jesus does it. I love it. Mark 10, 21. The Bible says, Then Jesus, what are the next three words? Looking at him, what? Loved him. Mark noticed Jesus' disposition. Jesus wasn't saying, keep the commandments and you'll be saved. The Bible says, Jesus, can you imagine the gaze of Christ? Can you imagine the gaze of Christ? His eyes meets this young man's eyes, and he sees in the eyes of the great I am love for him personally. And looking at him. You know, you can tell how people feel when they connect with your eyes. When somebody really cares about you, they want something for you, they connect. When they say, Bob, listen to me. Bob, listen to me. Or they say, like a, as a parent to a child, don't do that. Don't do that. You can tell in that moment that this is more than instruction. You can tell what amazes me is with all the people that have ever walked the planet, very few times that you read in the gospel story that there was a one-to-one -one encounter between Jesus and somebody else, and the writer recorded, looking at him, he loved him. Not saying that Jesus is not the very beginning and circumference of love itself. Love could not exist apart from Christ. But in this moment, he concentrated all of his divinity, 
in that moment to let that young man know this is a pivotal moment in your eternal life. You're about to make a decision that could end one way or the other, but I want you to know I'm not going to tell you what to do until I tell you that I love you. And he saw it in the eyes of Jesus, and he said to him in this loving tone, one thing you lack. We're going to break this down because there are points that are, are in this verse that are broken down into five particular areas. We're going to cover them. One thing you lack, what's the next word? Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and do what? Follow me. Let me start with the very first thing. I call this, I call this the proximity of eternity. Say that with me. Proximity means how far away is it? How near is it? When I, when I look at this, how many things did Jesus say was standing between this young man and eternity? How many? Let me help you out. How many? Do you realize that in every instance where a person decides to accept or not accept Christ, do you realize there's pretty much one thing? How many things? One. So the proximity of eternity is simply saying in that phrase, one thing thou lack, what I got from that is none of us is as far from eternal life as we may believe. You're only one decision away. There's only one thing that bars you from having the greatest gift that God has ever made available to humanity. How many things is it? One thing. The proximity of eternity. One thing between heaven and hell. One thing between life and death. One thing between being lost and being saved. And if anybody knows, you know exactly what that is. And you know that in, in this whole context of the one thing, Satan's mission is to get us to love that one thing more than we love Jesus. But the mission of Jesus is to get us to love him more than we love that one thing. Oh, man, hold me back, Lord. How many of you love sleep more than you love Jesus? How many of you love the comfort of your home rather than the comfort of getting together and just praying and studying God's word together? Human nature is fickle. We have so many qualifications. We would do that, but there's i got to do one thing. Remember when Jesus invited, he said the supper was ready, and one man said, I just got married. I can't come. Guy said, I bought a piece of land. I can't come. A guy said, I have cattle. In his case, a, a, whore, a, a cow was more important than going to the supper that Jesus said. And depending on how you got married, depending on what kind of spouse you had, that man said, I just got married. My wife ain't letting me go anywhere. And honestly, there are some spouses that are the barrier between their wife or husband being saved. We did an evangelistic series in Vallejo, California many years ago, and there were two sailors that were there. They came one Sabbath morning during the end of the series. They had on their Navy uniforms. Uh, they were on the submarines. They had on their white outfits. They just looked so official. And the call was made, and the young man stood up, and his wife sitting next to him. She said to him, if you get baptized, when you come home, I'm going to divorce you. And he sat back down. 
We found out about that later on. We saw him stand up, and when we made the call to come forward, we saw him sit down. And we found out, what, I asked him, what happened? And we found out that they joined another church instead of ours. Because the reason his wife told him to sit down is because by joining the Vallejo Seventh-day Adventist Church meant he was going to be a Sabbath keeper. And she, having the background that she did in a prior denomination, was not about to keep the Sabbath. So she said, if you join that church, when you come home, I'm going to divorce you. One thing. One thing. Satan's mission is to get us to love that one thing more than we love Christ. But the mission of Jesus in the proximity of eternity, don't forget that, the proximity of eternity, Jesus came all the way from eternity to come right down here, look us in the face, loving us and said, I want to give you eternal life, but you got to hate that one thing and you got to love me above that one thing. Whatever the one thing is in your life, when we stand in the day of judgment, wherever we may stand, we will say one of two things. I am so glad I gave up that one thing for Jesus. Or I wish I did give up that one thing for Jesus. That's why I'm still praying for my sister. She's 60-something years old. If there's a party, she's going to find it. Posts on Facebook. I said, you had another party? When are you going to stop partying? When are you going to lay down your party life for eternity? And it's always a friend has a party. Always has a, another a friend has a party. Another girlfriend has a party. Always a party. The devil can keep you busy with that one thing until the parties are no more. The clubs are not open anymore. The entertainment system has been shut down by God Almighty. And then all of a sudden, that one thing really doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. One thing. Everybody has a one thing, and everybody knows that that one thing is the pivotal issue between being saved and being lost. The second thing is, first, the proximity of eternity. The second thing is the imperative of eternity. In the proximity, the statement is one thing you lack, one thing you lack. But now let's go to the second point that this scripture brings out. I call this the imperative of eternity. What does that say together? The, there is some, the imperative, and imperative means you got to do this. And the imperative of eternity can be summarized in one word. Let's say that word. Can you see it? It's gigantic. What's that word? Go. Go. That's how races begin. That's how car races begin. That's how... Drag racing begin. That's how foot races begin. That's how any competition begins. Go. Flip the coin. You go first. You go next. You get the ball first. You get the ball next. It always starts with the word go. The imperative of eternity. If you don't respond to go, you cannot begin the race. And if we don't begin the race, we cannot finish the race. Why is the word go an imperative word? Because go means nobody can make that decision but you. John didn't run that race for anybody but himself. John Stevens Aquari didn't run that race for anybody but himself. Is that the case? No. He ran it for his country. He found a cause above himself. If you do everything just for self, 
you'll get caught in the go moments. Who are you going for when people are willing to put their lives on the line for their country? They go to battle. They may not come home, but why do they go? Because I have dedicated my life to defend my country. Brothers and sisters, if our lives have not been dedicated to serve our Lord, to stand for eternity, to live for something greater than ourselves, then goal means absolutely nothing. Goal means it's up to you. It means that no one can do it but you. Goal means get moving. Doesn't it mean that? Get going. Run the race. Get in the race. But the problem with eternal life is not its requirements. The problem with eternal life is the one to whom the invitation is extended, the audience. As one person once said to me, I joined your church, but man, there's so many requirements. Really? No, that's the community in which you live. Those are the beliefs in which you are unified on. But that is not the requirement for eternity. The requirement for eternity is to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. And so we sing just as I am and fail to realize that it doesn't mean we remain just as we were. <laughs> I was talking about this with my wife actually maybe Thursday or yesterday and we were talking about how our ministry began back in 1987. We had to have been crazy Oh, Ron, we have had to have at that time such trust in God that nothing can get these two crazy young people to do anything other than what we did. I mean, how many people would leave Orlando, Florida? Everything you have is in your 5 by 8 trailer. You don't know where you're going to live. And for those of you that like to be economically sound, how would you like to move from Orlando, Florida with only under $600 in your pocket to find a place to live. God kept all the facts from us because God can handle the facts. Stopped in Vallejo, California at a, uh, not a hotel, not a motel, but a yotel. It's a truck stop, Ron. We were in a motel where you don't want to take your socks off in the room. Because you could tell a trucker with oil on his feet was there the day before you or the day before that or the day before that. And, when, and in the morning, you could hear all the trucks starting up as they were getting ready to leave. When we arrived in California, we stopped at a Yotel. And with our money diminishing, every chance we got, our money diminishing, $25 for another, uh, 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 another application for an apartment, and we kept getting turned down because they kept saying to us, over the last two years of traveling around the world, they kept saying to us, Donna, you were moving around too much. You're, you didn't have a steady job. I said, that was my job. What did you do? Sang. And where was this singing taking place? In 19 countries around the world. They said you were too unstable to get this apartment. What I came to find out was the Lord saying, no, the apartment that you have in mind is not the apartment I have in mind. We were, looking, we were looking in the valley at all those apartment buildings that had been around a long time, but God's plan was to get us an apartment in the mountains, in a brand new complex where there was only one apartment left, apartment number seven. 
Brand new, beautiful lines, solid yellow lines, dark green uh, 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 lawns. Even the security guard had on a brand new uniform. And we looked at that apartment and said, could we afford this? My wife and I had been turned down three times at that point. We said, there's no way we could afford this. Here's the point. The imperative of go means that God is responsible for what happens after you go. We went, and I can tell you now, we can look back on that. We, have, we took a picture of that apartment last year. We stopped at that apartment where our journey began, April. We stopped at that apartment, leaned there 30, 34 years later, leaned right, that, right by number seven. This is where our journey began, right in there. God did not just say go, but he says, if you go, I'll take care of you. And he provided us the best apartment, the last one left with all the bells and whistles, all the upgrades free of charge for just $238. Because he knew that's all we really had. If you trust God, let me rephrase that. If you can't trust God, who can you trust? The third part about that is the third point is the conflict of eternity. The first one was the proximity of eternity, the imperative of eternity, and the conflict of eternity. What's the conflict of eternity? Are you watching, Jason? Here's the conflict. This is the conflict right here. Sell whatever you have. That's the conflict. You mean I got to give up cigarettes? You mean I got to give up the way I live? You mean I got to give up promiscuity? I got to stop working on the Sabbath? You mean I got to do all that? The conflict. Whenever we are faced with a decision about eternity and anything gets between us and eternity, that's a sad moment because if we start looking to the left rather than to the right, to the one who says, You let go of all that, I got you covered. The conflict of eternity is when our possessions have been given greater power than eternity. When our possessions have been given greater priority than eternity. One of the greatest lies we tell ourselves is what we possess is greater than what Jesus can offer us. But I look back now and say what Jesus has done in our lives is greater than what we could have ever done in our lives ourselves. Can anybody else say amen to that? What Christ has done is far greater than what we can ever do. That's why our wealth is not greater than God's wealth. What we possess is not greater than what Jesus offers. Here's the reason. When that young man looked at all that, he had a whole lot, a whole lot of stuff. And Mark 10, verse 22, makes this comment about his decision. It says, so he was very sad. He was sad at the word and went away sorrowful because he had what? Great, Great possessions. Let me make a point. You can't take anything with you. For the sake of the cross, leave it all behind. Luke says it this way, Luke 18, verse 23, but when he heard this, he became what? Very sorrowful because he was very rich. One of the greatest lies that Satan tells us is that we are richer than God. Isn't that a lie? To think that your wealth and possessions are more important than eternity is a demonic distortion. It is a lie. When you go back on that, this loving Christ, he didn't realize at that very moment everything depended on not his reception of the gift, but his reception of the gift giver. Because Jesus came to fulfill what John wrote about in John 15, verse 13, 
This is a beautiful passage. It talks about how the Lord goes that extra mile for us. How he's willing to do anything that he has the power to do so that we may have eternal life. John 15, 13, what does the Bible say? Greater love has no one than this, than to do what? Lay down one's life for his friends. When you look at the story, the, the, the part that I did not include yet as I close is this. The disciples were watching this happen. At least Matthew, Mark, and Luke were there. And the disciples are watching this whole thing. They see the young man walking away. And the Bible says in Matthew 19, verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? In other words, Lord, you made this so hard. How's anybody going to make it in? And I love the way that Jesus responded. When we think that the moment is difficult, here's what Jesus says to each one of us. Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, what? With men, this is what? Impossible. But with God, how many things? All things are possible. It is possible for Jesus to save the worst sinner. It is possible for Jesus to deliver anybody from any addiction. It is possible to take the worst and make them the best, the darkest and make them the brightest, the lowest and make them the highest, if we simply understand that what Jesus is capable of is far beyond man's ability. With men, it may not be possible, but with God, how many? All things are possible. Fourth, just before my last point, which is so significant, the fourth point the reward of eternity. This one really caught my attention because this young man wasn't thinking about the reward of eternity. Even though Jesus had not told him about what was coming after the go, sometimes the Lord doesn't tell us what's coming after the go because he wants to see if we are willing to go. A lot of us are hesitant because we think that if we go, what's going to happen to us? Jesus addressed the post-to-go invitation. In Matthew 19, verse 29, because Peter started getting into it and said, Lord, we've left everything for you. We've left, I don't fish anymore. I don't, have, I don't follow my family anymore. We've left everything for you. And look at what the words of Jesus are about the reward of eternity. The reward of eternity is simply this. You will have treasure. Where, my friends? In heaven. But not just heaven. Here is the hidden blessings of Jesus. I wish you were enjoying this as much as I am. Matthew 19, 29, the Bible says, let's read this together. And some, and most, together, and everyone who has left what? Houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake shall receive what? A hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Wow. You know what that is in essence saying? You know what Jesus said? How much money do you have in the bank, young man? Uh, 62,000. Let's give a round number so you can grab it. How much you got? A thousand. What if I put a hundred thousand? Would that sweeten the pot? Excuse me? You'll give me 100000 if I follow you. I'm on my way. I'm coming. The Lord doesn't do that because he doesn't want us to think that he has to buy us to be saved. The gift comes after the go. Say that with me. 
The gift comes after the go. He doesn't give you the gift because he doesn't want your heart to be motivated by selfishness. He wants your dedication to him to be motivated by love. One thing you lack, the hindrance. Sell all you have, total reliance on Christ. And then when we rely on Christ, we will see that the blessing is far greater than we can ever provide for ourselves. Isn't that right? Well, I know my life has a testament to that. And the last point, the last point, the abandonment of our way, the abandonment of our way, which comes in this phrase. Here is the abandonment of our way. This is the word, the phrase. Take up your cross and do what? Follow me. We've got a cross, but the cross is not our crucifixion. The cross is accepting the crucifixion of Christ. The Lord is not asking you, Jason, to be nailed to a cross. He already did that. He's asking you to have his righteousness imparted and imputed to you so that you don't have to take the penalty of your own sin. The abandonment of our way simply means... We've got to daily make the decision to lay our lives down that his life may be seen. Amen, somebody. The power of go is Jesus. The power of go is Jesus. The power of go is who? Jesus. Why? He is who he said he is. He can do what he said he can do. He can save all that come to him, and he can provide all for all that follow him. He is the real deal. The power of go. The power of go. I want to invite my praise team, Terry, to come on up. <laughs> the power of go. I can tell you some stories in our lives. We stayed in the race. Oh, yeah, we got scars to prove it. We got scars to prove it. Sometimes our emotions get scarred. Sometimes our hearts get scarred. Sometimes our feelings get hurt. But I'm staying in the race. Come on, anybody, can, can you say amen? amen? I don't care what gets hurt. I'm staying in the race. I don't care if I got to go in with a, a knapsack with all my medication, I'm going to make it in. What about you? I don't care if somebody has to roll me in. Right, Tracy? We going in together. Amen? I don't care how I get in as long as I make it in. So offend me, hate me, love me, support me, deny me, whatever you want to do. I am John Parker Loma King. I'm going to cross the finish line in Jesus' name. Got to tell you the end of John's story. You know he didn't win the race, but in a way he did. He didn't come in first. But many years later, all the Olympians that ran the race, nobody could really recall who they were. But John was invited many, many years later to the Brazilian Olympics. But John Stephen Aquari was recognized. As the real Olympian, he came in last, but they gave him a medal of determination because he refused to give up. Brother and sister, one day there's going to be a sea of glass. People standing there not because they crossed the finish line first, but because they were determined that God did not send Jesus for us just to start the race. He sent Jesus for us to finish the race. Thus, we stand together and repeat this passage. Let's stand together. Here it is. This is John's passage. This is my passage. This is the Christian's passage. This is the power of gold that Jesus can equip every one of us to hang in there. And the Apostle Paul, the greatest example of the power of gold outside of Jesus. He says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, let's read this together. With the voice of the Olympian, here we go. 
I fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the what? Crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a crown for you today. Are you going to keep going? Are you going to keep going? Is it rough? It's going to get worse. But remember, the power of go is Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about that power of go. I'm going to have Terry sing this song. We're going to sing it together. And then we're going to realize that the power of God is about Jesus. I just want more about Jesus. He can equip us to make it through if we simply let the God of transformation come into our lives. But it's all up to us. Go. Whatever you have, get rid of it. Whatever that one thing is, lay it down. Whatever that cross is, bear it. Because when the day comes for the cross to be put aside and the crowns to be passed out, I'm getting mine. <laughs> By Jesus by, by the power of Jesus, humility is mine. By the grace of Christ, I'm looking forward one day to get my little tiny crown. And I'm going to take it off and put it at the feet of Jesus. Why? It's all about Jesus. Let's sing this song together before we pray. I would know more of his grace to others show more of his saving fullness see more of his love who died for me give me more more about Jesus it is more more about Jesus more Let me learn more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher, be Here it is. showing the things of Christ to me. It is more, more about Jesus. Give me more, more about Jesus. on his throne 
Loving Father in heaven, the power of go is you. In you, the sufficiency. In you, the capacity. In you, the legitimacy. Every provision lays before those who respond to the go. Go. Get yourself out of the way. Go. Disconnect yourself from possessions that have you bound. Go and give to those who are in need. Stop ignoring those around you with the love and the insatiable desire to just hold on to things. Go. Take up your cross. Lay down that part of you that refuses to die and allow Christ to come in. Go. As I go left, you follow me. As I go right, you follow me. Follow me until the day we walk hand in hand across the finish line into the new Jerusalem. Lord, today remind us that it is impossible to finish a race if we don't start it. And I pray that today somebody here would say, Lord, I want to get into that race. I'm going to, I'm going to allow the inspiration of your life. Who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross? Could that be where John received his encouragement. If Christ can endure it, I can stand this race. One day we're going to stand on the podium of your victory. We're going to receive the crown of your victory. We're going to wear the robe of your righteousness and stand in your city. Oh, Lord, help us not to hear the words of the challenge of invitation and say there's something down here more important than what is up there. May we find that this world is passing away. Everything about it is frail, and we are being reminded every day that not too long hence, there will be nothing left on this planet that is reliable. So, Lord, today, may we recommit ourselves to go, to go until you return, to go until self is no longer seen, to go until Christ is the only one being exalted, to go until we hear the words, well done, Thou good and faithful servant. May this be our desire. May this be our prayer. And may we invite you in to accomplish it all. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.